RD Talks, brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Surgery at 28,000 feet by John Dyson. The woman was dying and the jumbo jet had no time to land. I have to operate, the surgeon said. Paula Dixon hugged Thomas Golster tightly as he steered his Yamaha motorcycle through the outskirts of Hong Kong towards Kai Tak Airport. Only two weeks earlier, Dixon, 38, had left Aberdeen, Scotland. Separated and waiting for a divorce, she was lonely and in need of a holiday. On her first evening in Hong Kong, she met Golster, a tall 30-year-old factory manager from Stuttgart, Germany. It had been a whirlwind romance. Three days before her trip was over, Golster had pushed back his chair in a crowded restaurant, dropped to one knee and whispered, Will you marry me? You're joking, Dixon replied. I've been looking for you all my life, he said. She hugged him ecstatically. The answer's yes. Now, as they rode slowly through the balmy twilight, Dixon was already dreaming about starting a new life. She would fly back to Britain, but return as soon as she could to Hong Kong and Golster. Suddenly, a blue car pulled out from a side road. As Golster braked hard, the motorcycle hit the car's door. Dixon catapulted forward, slammed onto the car's boot and slid to the road. Dazed, the dark-haired woman struggled to her feet. Golster ran to her. Are you hurt? he asked. Just a scratch, she said shakily. Her left forearm had a bleeding seven and a half centimetre graze. What about you? I'm okay, but I'm taking you to hospital, he replied. Dixon shook her head. It's not that bad, she said determinedly. I want to get the plane. Please, darling, just take me to the airport. At the check-in desk, Barbara Murray waited impatiently beside a trolley piled high with luggage. Why is Paula so late, she wondered. The two long-time friends had come on this holiday together. Check-in for their return flight would close in 15 minutes. Finally, Dixon arrived, looking pale. We were knocked off the bike, she said, showing Murray her injured arm. You ought to get it looked at, Murray replied. No, Dixon said. The sooner I get home, the sooner I'll be back. She embraced Golster, and with a final wave, the women passed through passport control. The huge Boeing 747, carrying 331 passengers, would take nearly 15 hours non-stop to reach London. Dixon and Murray had the four middle seats in row 53, at the very back, to themselves. As they boarded the plane, Dixon stopped a flight attendant. Could I have a couple of paracetamol tablets, she asked, and something to clean my arm? I think it needs more than that, said the attendant, seeing the gash. Moments later, Sammy Burlton, the chief purser, was informed that a passenger might have a broken arm. Call for a doctor, she said crisply. I'll warn the captain we might have a problem. An announcement went out over the public address system. If there is a doctor on board, would you please make yourself known to a member of the cabin crew? Tom Wong, in economy class, snapped open his seatbelt. The slim young man in blue jeans looked like a student but Wong, 26, was a newly qualified doctor, heading back to his job at a hospital in Scotland. Upstairs in business class, another hand went up. Can I help? Angus Wallace asked. The burly 46-year-old Scotsman, a professor of orthopaedics and accident surgery in Nottingham, England, had been in Hong Kong examining medical students. On the last day of his visit, he took a break from his hectic work schedule to go snorkelling. Now he planned to spend the flight reading medical papers after enjoying a quiet dinner. Instead, the surgeon made his way to the back of the plane, where Wong was already examining Dixon. 
the young doctor stepped aside for the professor. Stooping, Wallace gently pressed Dixon's bruised forearm. The woman winced, but her colour was fine and she mentioned no other symptoms. Even if the arm was fractured, the doctor decided, she could continue on the flight. We can take off and splint her arm when we're in the sky, he told Belton. Minutes later, the 747 Jumbo blasted down the runway and lifted into the night. As the lights of Hong Kong flashed past the windows, Dixon thought how much she wanted to be with Golster. When the fastened seatbelt sign switched off, Wallace looked through the plane's medical kit and found a splint and bandages. He and Wong returned to row 53. Deftly, Wallace cradled the splint around Dixon's elbow and Wong wrapped the arm in bandages. That should hold you, Wallace said. You're spoiling me, Dixon replied, thanking them. Well after midnight, Hong Kong time, Dixon was still awake. Listening to rock music over a headset, she mused about her good fortune in meeting Golster. Her injured arm ached only a bit, but the altitude made her feet begin to swell. She leaned forward to unlace her ankle boots. As she twisted her body to reach with her good hand, it felt as though something was stabbing her under the ribs. God, the pain, she groaned, clutching her side. Angus Wallace couldn't imagine what the problem might be when a flight attendant interrupted his reading and asked him to look at the passenger he had treated a couple of hours before. What's the matter, he asked when he got to Dixon. My chest, Dixon said, panting. Wallace pressed his fingers against her ribs. Why didn't you tell me about this before? It wasn't sore then, she said. I think you've fractured some ribs. Turning to Belton, he said, We'll give her a painkiller. Would you open the medical kit, please? But when Wallace returned with a syringe, he saw that Dixon was worse. Her colour was blue and her breathing was shallow and rapid. He tapped her chest and listened with a stethoscope, but could hear nothing over the roar of the jet engines. Then he pressed his fingers against her windpipe and was horrified. Dixon's trachea, the air tube under the skin at the front of her neck, had moved to the right. Can't be. Wallace pressed again. No doubt about it. Quickly, he walked the length of the darkened cabin while Wong was awakened. Tom, I want your opinion, Wallace said when the two conferred in the galley. Wong checked Dixon's chest and windpipe and confirmed that she was having difficulty breathing. Wallace suspected that Dixon's left lung was collapsing. I need to talk with the captain, Wallace said. In the cockpit, he perched on the jump seat behind Captain Barry Hattam and explained the problem. A broken rib must have punctured her left lung. Dixon needed an operation. How soon can we land the plane? New Delhi's our best bet, Hattam replied. We could be on the ground in an hour and a half. Forget it, Wallace replied. She could die in less than an hour, he thought. Then said, I'll have to take action myself. Each time Dixon breathed out, a little more air leaked through the hole in her left lung into her chest cavity. The bubble of air building up there was compressing her damaged lung, deflating it. The more Dixon struggled for breath, the bigger the bubble grew. When the left lung was fully deflated, the second lung would start to go. Gasping in agony, Dixon would suffocate. She had, Wallace gauged, about 45 minutes. In a hospital, the procedure to relieve the problem was routine. A hollow needle would be inserted into the chest cavity, allowing the air to escape. Here, Wallace would have to improvise. He soon had an idea. I need some kind of tubing, he told the cabin crew. What have we got? A drinking straw? Too weak, Wallace thought. The plastic barrel of a pen? It won't hold in place. Then a flight attendant brought the oxygen mask used in safety demonstrations. Wallace's eyes lit up and he snipped off a length of its plastic tubing. 
In the bottom of the medical kit, he found a urinary catheter, a thin tube designed for insertion into the bladder. One end was sealed like the bottom of a bottle, but its last couple of centimetres or so were perforated with tiny holes to allow liquid to enter the tube and flow out. So could air, Wallace thought. This will work, but it's too floppy, he said. I need something rigid to go in the centre of the tube so I can push it into the chest. A flight attendant found a wire coat hanger. Wallace straightened it out, then bent it back and forth to break the hook off. Measuring it against the catheter tube, he broke the wire into a length, about 45 centimetres, a little longer than the tube. The wire had to be sterilised, but there was no disinfectant. Someone produced a bottle of Corvoisier Exo Imperial Brandy, 40% alcohol. Wallace nodded quickly. Cleaning the wire, he laid it on a tray that Belton had covered with a white cloth. Then he cleaned the tubing from the oxygen mask and finished by splashing brandy over some scissors. Wallace knew he needed a one-way valve to trap the air released and prevent it from going back into Dixon's chest. Opening a small bottle of Evian water, he pierced two holes in its plastic cap. Next he drank half the water, replaced the cap, and threaded the piece of oxygen tubing through one hole, leaving the other open. That's our valve, he said, putting it on the tray. Rubber gloves, scalpel, cleaning swabs and sutures were in the medical kit. Belton produced a roll of adhesive tape from her cabin bag. The last hurdle was anaesthetic. The medical kit held lignocaine, a powerful drug for cases of cardiac arrest. Wallace knew it could also be used as a local anaesthetic, but how much could safely be given? Wait a minute, said Wong. I've got a BNF. He hurried to retrieve a small purple book from his hand luggage. The British National Formulary lists every known drug. Wong quickly thumbed to lignocaine and in a moment worked out the right dose. Good, Wallace said, drawing off the amount into a syringe. He checked his watch. Fifteen precious minutes had sped by. Not much time left. The flight attendants had made an operating theatre by taping curtains and blankets round row 53 and flipping on the reading lights. Dixon sat up in her seat, her face covered with beads of sweat. Matted hair clung to her scalp. Breathing shallowly, she felt as if she were drowning. You've got a collapsed lung and I have to operate, Wallace told her. You're not in a fit state to give consent, he added, inviting no argument, so I'm just going to do it. Dixon took the measure of this man. What are you waiting for, doctor, she gasped, managing a weak grin. Squeezing between the seats, Wallace faced his patient. If he punctured one of the arteries that lay beneath each rib, Dixon could bleed to death in minutes. I could be on a manslaughter charge by morning, he thought. But if I don't do something, she'll die anyway. He pushed the anxiety out of his mind. Laying the sterile hand towels over her chest, Wallace tore open a surgical wipe to clean the skin. Next, he injected the anaesthetic. It would numb only half the thickness of her chest wall, but that was the best he could do. The insertion point would be in the space between the second and third ribs. Wallace threaded a curved suture needle and quickly flicked it in and out through the skin. He tied the thread in an open loop like a purse string, ready to be drawn tight around the tube later. With the scalpel he made a small incision, just over half a centimetre, where the drain was to go. There was only a little bleeding. Now came the critical moment. Gripping the surgical scissors like a screwdriver, Wallace put his right knee on the edge of the seat beside Dixon. The chances of hitting an artery are 10%, he calculated. But an arterial wall is tough and rounded. He hoped the scissors would be blunt enough to push it aside. 
positioning the closed point of the scissors in the incision, Wallace bore down. As the steel sliced through the muscle and tissue into her chest, Dixon felt as if she were being skewered on a meat hook. Her chin jerked upwards and she shuddered. Wallace then twisted the scissor blade 90 degrees to widen the hole. Dixon was in intense pain, now envisioning herself as being impaled on an iron railing. The scissors were five centimetres into the chest cavity. As Wallace drew them out, Wong quickly passed him the wire-reinforced catheter tube. Wallace positioned it in the hole he had made and thrust downwards. Dixon groaned loudly and grimaced in agony. She tried to focus on reasons to survive. Her three children. Galster. I'm coming back to you. I am, I am. Wallace pulled the coat hanger out of the catheter, leaving the tube in the chest. Be brave, lassie, he said. Hurrying now, he connected the catheter tube to the oxygen tube that was threaded into the Evian bottle. Then he drew the purse string suture tight, sealing the skin against the catheter to make the hole airtight. A moment later, Belton exclaimed, You've got bubbles. Is that what you want? From the end of the tube in the water, bubbles were streaming forth. That's exactly what I want, Wallace replied. He glanced at Wong. Is there any blood in the water? No blood, Wong answered, grinning. Well done, Prof. Wallace adroitly put another stitch round the tube to hold it in place on Dixon's chest. Where the two tubes joined, he sealed them with adhesive tape. At last, he looked up at his patient. Her colour was returning and she gave him a sunny smile. Theatrically, Burlton wiped Wallace's brow like a practised nurse. The doctor joined in the round of laughter. After making sure that Dixon was stable, he walked forwards towards the darkened cabin, past dozing passengers. Their 747 was now piercing the night sky at 925 kilometres per hour, 28,000 feet over India. Reaching the galley, Wallace spied the cognac he'd used to disinfect the instruments. Weak with relief, he picked up the bottle and took a gulp. Just before landing at Heathrow Airport, Wallace checked on Dixon one last time, finding her cheerful and composed. Thank you, doctor, she said, planting a grateful kiss on his cheek. Then he shook hands with Tom Wong. Neither spoke of the professional risks they had run or medical history they had made. It was the first time a collapsed lung had been operated on in mid-air. Two weeks later, completely recovered, Paula Dixon flew back to Thomas Golster in Hong Kong. Shortly after she arrived, he bought her an engagement ring. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.